We're in Isaiah 62. And Isaiah 62 really fits so strongly with what we studied this morning from John 19 as we uh, saw this morning the crucifixion of our Lord and the powerful symbolism of the redemption that was going to come for His people as He offers Himself up as the sin offering, as He enacts as high priest on our behalf, Uh, to be able to take away our sins and to set us free from the enslavement that we had put ourselves under. Isaiah 62 continues to picture what it means to belong to Christ. As Isaiah has been prophesying about this new group of people and this family that Christ will establish when He comes. And so you can imagine as Isaiah is prophesying before the arrival of Jesus about what a glorious time it will be after the servant comes and dies for sins and all that he is going to accomplish for his people. And this then chapter in Isaiah 62 is going to tell us about how God is going to accomplish this, the attitude that God has towards his people, which is then going to provide an amazing amount of hope uh, to those who belong to the Lord. Uh, I could probably say after 62 times, this is my favorite chapter that we've studied so far. Alright, get used to that. Keep keep saying it. Here it is again. This chapter is amazing, uh, and I hope to do my best to try to reveal some of the great things that we see in here. Let's begin with the first five verses of Isaiah 62 as we see the transformation of God's people. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning uh, torch. The nations shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I feel like that's one of those... The reading was good enough. Let's go home. An amazing declaration that God gives here as He is describing coming out of Isaiah 61. It is the year of the Lord's favor when Christ comes. The year of the Lord's favor and the glad tidings that would be spread. Proclaim the good news. The captives will be set free. The people will come out of darkness. And all the joy that will happen as God's people will be there. Here is chapter 62 beginning with for Zion's sake. Now remember 
remember what we saw back in Isaiah 59 and verse 20 where he described Zion is the people who turn from transgression. These are the people who recognize their sin, who are poor in spirit, are desiring a Savior and want a way out of sin. So this is the new Zion that Isaiah has pictured from Isaiah 59. Here it is, this imagery, and now God says, here's what's going to happen to Zion. Zion, my people, they are going to be righteous. They will possess salvation. In fact, verse 1 describes God in such a way that it pictures Him that He will not be silent, He will not sit still until this truth happens. Zion, my people, are righteous and they have salvation. And so you have God saying, as He prophesied 700 years before Christ, I'm going to do something. And I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going aside. I'm not closing my eyes. I'm anxious. I'm alert. I'm ready. I am going to act. I will not keep silent. And I will have Zion, my people. They will be righteous. Now remember why that's so staggering. Is over and over again, Isaiah has told us, You are full of sins. Isaiah 59 was deep in that. Remember where this most of that's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 to basically summarize, no one is righteous. We are all sinful and Isaiah 59 lays that out. That this is not that you are now suddenly going to be righteous in and of yourself. This is a declaration given to you by God. God is going to pronounce the status upon you as righteous and as saved. You will be saved from your sins. You will now enjoy righteousness, not because you are perfect, but because God is going to come and bring salvation, will now be able to justify, to give us that picture, to give us that status, to give us that image. You now are justified, though you were deep in your sins. God has come and He is saved. And here is God saying, I will not cease to speak. I will not stop moving until that the very thing happens. I am coming to save my people. Until, He says at the end of verse, six, uh, verse 1, until it shines forth as bright like a burning torch. We've seen this again and again, this image. My people are going to shine as lights. And you're going to burn with righteousness. And salvation will be seen so that in verse 2 he says, the nations are going to see your righteousness. And what he means is they're going to see a people that have been transformed by God. He is, the nations are going to see here is a people who are full of sin, who are completely wicked, just like the nations. But these people will be changed. Because God has come to say, now they will behave radically differently than they have before. And from Isaiah 40 on, we have seen these images again and again of God's people living transformed, changed lives that the world will see, which will cause the nations to come into Him. And so verse 2 describes it so much so that in the middle of verse 2, He uses the statement, you're going to be called by a new name. So radical will the change be that God says, I can call you by a different name. 
It's going to be an entirely different relationship, an entirely different situation, a whole new scenario of God with His people. This is what God is picturing as His people are so radically transformed that they have a new character, new relationship that God says, I can call you by a new name. And notice that He even says there that this is what the Lord is going to give. Verse 3 just conjures the beauty just amazingly. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And when you've read Isaiah 59 and you've read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and describing you are full of sins, you are stained by your sins, you are wicked, you are separated by God, your sins have separated you from your God. Here is God saying that's going to change, that no longer will you be defiled by your sins, but God says you are going to be like a beautiful crown that God possesses, that He holds in His hand. These are my people. And He considers them a blessing, a crown of beauty in His hand, a royal diadem that He is holding. And the picture even goes a little bit further in verse 4. No more will you be termed forsaken or the land be called desolate. We've seen that again and again. We can go all the way back to Isaiah 32 where He said, your land is desolate. It's completely devastated until the Spirit of the Lord is poured out. And when the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, then that, that desolation and that wilderness will become a forest and a fruitful field. He describes this radical transformation that's going to happen with His people and with this relationship. And you see the same thing here. Isaiah 61 kicked off. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me when Christ comes. Radical change is going to happen. So now you will not be called forsaken. You will not be called desolate. And this, I believe, is such a beautiful promise that God gives to His people. Over and over again, God would say that to them. I'm with you so you can be strong and courageous. He'd say that to Moses and Joshua. He'd tell so many of these people who would follow Him, I'm with you and because I am with you, you can succeed, you will conquer. Think about the spies as Joshua and Caleb rightly say, it doesn't matter that they're bigger. It doesn't matter that they're stronger. It doesn't matter that they have more armies. God's with us. That's all we need. We saw in the book of Judges the truth of that. You don't need 10,000 people. You just need 300 in faith and we will go wail on the Midianites. Let's go. So beautiful that when God is with us, no one, no one can overcome. And this promise that we're reading here in Isaiah was a promise that would continue throughout, particularly to the new people of God. It is why the writer of Hebrews draws on that same promise when he writes, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Why should we not put our hope in this world and and, and put our trust in riches? Why should we not chase after what we see before our eyes? Why should we not go after the things that are before us that are physical? He says, because I've made a promise to you. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? Same promise. 
New relationship, new situation, radically changed. God calls us righteous. God calls us saved. And He said, I'm not going to leave you. No longer will you be called forsaken. No longer will you be called desolate. I am with you is what He says. You are in My hand as a beautiful crown. You belong to Me. Notice the picture goes further with that. In the rest of verse 4, He says, Your land will be called married. Here is this covenant relationship. You have to love when God describes, here He is with us and He uses marriage language. Because when you go to Genesis 2, that is for a lifetime. You know, today when you talk about marriage, it doesn't really communicate covenant anymore. It kind of communicates Kleenex. You just kind of, you know, you get rid of it when you're done and just kind of move on your merry way. Marriage in the eyes of God is forever. It is for life. And He says, I've married you. You're with me. You belong to me. We're not going to be separated. In fact, I think useful to point out here there as we look at verse 4, you might have a footnote in your Bible like mine under married. It says the Hebrew word there is Beulah. And I'm glad it says that because when I grew up, we had a song that said Beulah Land. And I had no idea what we were singing about. It drove me crazy. I would sit there and go, Beulah Land, sweet Beulah Land. What is that? We're singing about the relationship of God. I wish I'd known. I wish someone had told me that. <laughs> I have like, no idea what this song is all about. Oh, it's Isaiah 62. Relationship. We are singing about the land which is us in being married, joined forever with God. So that's what he says there at the end of verse 4. Your land is called married. It is Beulah land. This is you joined with God forever. And if that was not enough... The middle of verse 4, it just blows me away. Here's what God will also call us. My delight is in her. For a people who are full of sins that Jesus was sent to die for, that God can come along and not only say, I will forgive your sins, I will bring you into an eternal covenant with me, and I will not forsake you. And it is this covenant relationship of the blessings of God in which you will be transformed and show the light of God to the world. And God has delight in us. I don't know how to quantify that concept. It is an amazing, amazing picture that is used a couple of times in this text to draw out that God could have joy in us, that God delights in who we are. Think about the New Testament says that. I think I've missed that before in trying to get on to other concepts. But one of those great places is over like in Luke 15, a passage that we know very well, this parable of lost things just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance did you catch there that here is the statement of god has delight when you belong to him one more person comes to the lord and here is there is joy in heaven God delighting in His people. He is delighted that people come to Him recognizing their sin and He is able to pronounce them saved and righteous. 
And he takes joy in that. He is delighted in the ability to do that through the sacrifice of his son. And so this then becomes such a beautiful image to us because he goes on to describe it's because he's he's cleansed us. He's changed us for the Lord delights in you and your 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 land to be married for as your young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Think about the end of verse five. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Think about that for a minute, fellows. You know what? How exciting that day was. The joy of marriage. I won't forget that. I mean, I've forgotten a whole lot of things in my life. But there is one thing of my past that I remember. I remember when April appeared at the end of the church building. And I saw her walk down that aisle. And the joy that was at that moment. Notice the image that God is using with that. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God Rejoice over you. Again, a staggering image of how much God loves us, that He delights in cleansing us. He delights in freeing us. He delights in us coming to Him. He delights in pronouncing us righteous. He delights that we would belong to Him and desire Him. And I just said it like this on the screen. It blows my mind to think about An all-sufficient God who is in need of nothing or anyone. He is whole and complete of His own. That's what makes Him God. Could say He delights in us. I can't even begin to understand that. All-sufficient God who does not need us and does not need anything and does not need our worship and does not need us to even exist. He is fine all to Himself. says, I have joy in you. That's the God we serve. And this is what Isaiah is proclaiming. This relationship is going to be amazing. That Christ is going to come and He will set us free and God will rejoice in us. He will delight in us. He will take joy in us. May we never think that we are a burden to God or that He does not want our prayers or desire us to come to Him or to speak to Him. He delights in us like a father to a child, like a bridegroom for the bride. He rejoices over his people. In fact, when we get look at verses six through nine, he tries to help us understand that very concept. Verse six on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and your foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary notice this imagery of watchmen that he uses here in verse 6 he says so on the walls Jerusalem I've set up the watchmen he says now typically what watchmen did is they stayed awake through the night to watch for enemies coming right you'd stay awake sound the trumpet if there's any danger coming that's what you were supposed to do but that's not what he says these watchmen are for notice that he's says what they're doing in verse 6 is he says all day and all night they're never to be silent 
put the Lord to remembrance and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is unbelievable. God says, I've made a promise. I'm going to send my servant. Here's Isaiah 700 years before Christ. I'm going to send Christ. He's going to have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He's going to save you from your sins. It's going to radically change everything so that you're no longer forsaken. You're no longer desolate. You will be my delight. You will belong to me. And now here's what I want you to do, Israel. Wear me out praying for it to happen. Do not give me rest. Pray all day and all night until it happens. The reason why that should be shocking to us is because we know when God makes a promise, He's going to do it. God could say, I promised it, now be quiet and wait. (laughs) I do as I say, so relax. Enough of the prayers, it's coming, alright? Just wait, quiet. No, God says, I promised it, And now don't stop praying for it. God will do it. And so pray about it, pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. Think about how often the New Testament is telling us to wear God out in our prayers. How often he says, pray without ceasing. Luke chapter 18, he says that he told this parable so that his disciples would not lose heart but be persistent in their prayers. God is begging us to wear Him out in prayer. Even if it is a promise of His that that we know is going to happen because He said it, God says, pray about it, pray about it, pray about it day and night. This is what it means to belong to our Lord in this glorious relationship that we have to be His children. What it means for us to enjoy these amazing blessings that God has given to declare us to be His people no longer forsaken. That He entreats us and says, pray about it. God has promised it, but pray it until it is accomplished. You know, you think about Jesus did teach us that. You know, when he told his disciples the model prayer that most everybody has memorized, he said, you know, pray your kingdom come. Well, wasn't God going to do that anyway? Did he really need the disciples to pray for the kingdom to come? I mean, if we didn't pray, you know, that kingdom would have been in total flux and hiatus until we actually offered prayer, right? That was coming anyway. Pray about it anyway. God promises something and then we are supposed to pray along those lines as well. Pray for it to happen. I suggest to you there's at least two reasons why God tells us to do that. One, it maintains our hope. Keep praying about the things that God has promised to keep your heart and keep your mind on those things. Keep praying for our future salvation where we will be joined with the Lord forever and eternity. Pray for His coming. It's not that it's not going to happen if we don't pray, but it keeps it in our hearts. It keeps it in our minds. It keeps it in our forefront that this is the most important thing that we desire the return of God. We desire His promises to be fulfilled. How about the promises that we were read even in Psalm 22? That God is with His people and He avenges them and He will deal with the enemies. Pray about that until it happens. Here we read in Psalm 22, we read it in Psalm 69, we read it all over the Scriptures, like here is the Lord, He's going to rule over the nations, and He's going to put all the enemies under His feet. That hasn't happened yet according to 1 Corinthians 15. 
For the last enemy is death. Pray for it. Yes, we know it's going to happen. But he says, hey, pray the promises. Keep going. Keep hoping. Keep waiting. It's an exciting thing to have at the forefront of our mind. It maintains our hope. And I believe it keeps it fresh in our mind so that we don't forget why we're here. These people were going to have to wait 700 years until people like Simeon and Annas could say the consolation of Israel has finally arrived. Our salvation has come. 700 years. And God wants those promises to be at the forefront of your mind. God will do it. Pray for it to happen. Don't forget it. Put your hope in it. And I hope that this would be a hope for us. That we have great hope in prayer. That we are to use prayer in this way. And how amazing it is that the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient God tells you and me, Pray, 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 pray. Talk to me. Don't stop. Don't stop. Keep talking to me. Wear me out day and night. Don't quit. Keep telling me. Call from on my promises. Let them come to pass. And then you see Isaiah picturing it happening. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 62. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for my people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall not and you shall be called sought out a city, not forsaken. So here is the picture. Here is God saying, now get ready. Here's God like visualize it. Okay, promises are coming. Pray for it to happen. And oh, by the way, here it comes. Salvation comes. It is arriving. Isaiah just sees it as if it is before him at that very moment. The obstacles of sin have been removed. Your salvation is coming. And so get ready. Here He comes. The Lord has proclaimed that your salvation is coming. Verse 11, your, His reward is with Him. His recompense is with Him as well. And verse 12 is so beautiful. Look at what He says that we will be called. First of all, huge one. He's going to come and we will be called the holy people. Again, This is mind-blowing for how Isaiah has set us up in all of our sins. That when the King comes, it's going to change everything. And rather than being sinful, desolate, and forsaken, the sinful, dark, wicked can now be called the holy people. You will now belong to Him. And He will take His delight in you. You will be called the holy people. You'll be called the redeemed of the Lord. Talk about singing the song of the redeemed right there. Unbelievable. It says, we will be His. We will be purchased by Him. We will belong to Him. How about this? The sought out. That's exactly what happened. None of us went looking for God first. God came to the earth first. As John would write, we love Him because He first loved us. We are the sought out. He comes to us to bring us back so that we can be His people, a city not forsaken. 
what a beautiful picture of what it means to belong to Him. And so Isaiah says, lift up your eyes and see that salvation is coming. Now, you're used to this by now, right? Horrible chapter break. Let's go to verse 1 because now Isaiah sees it. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his garments, marching in greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Answer. I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was appalled, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now you put a chapter break. So Isaiah says, hey look, salvation's coming. Here He comes. And then chapter 63 opens and says, here He comes. And what a beautiful picture in verse 1. Here's the one who comes from Edom in the garments and notice it is splendid in his apparel. So here comes this king riding in and he's got these splendid, beautiful garments as he comes. But notice where he comes from. It says that he comes from Edom. Bozrah is the capital of Edom. So saying it two ways, he comes from Edom. Why would he come from there? Remember Isaiah 34? No, that's a long time ago. I know. Isaiah 34, we were told Edom became the symbol of all of God's enemies. It was a symbol of the world. Edom has always represented the enemies of Israel. And Israel is the people of God. And so now he says, he has come from Edom. So here he is. Imagine him. Here comes the Savior. Here comes the King. Salvation has come. He comes riding in splendid garments. He comes from Edom. And there's this question. Why are your clothes all red? You've got these beautiful garments on. Why are they red is the question of verse 2. And notice his answer in verse 3. He says, I've trod the wide press alone. No one was with me. Here's a picture. Nobody else can do this. Here is your Lord and Savior and King. And He is doing something that no one else can do. He says, I tread the wine press. I was alone in this. No one was with me in this effort. I trod them in my anger, verse 3. I trampled them in my wrath. And he explains, here's what's on me. The lifeblood has splattered all over me. Amazing image. Now, before we go now, how does that work? I thought you said salvation was coming. And now we see him coming in and he's drenched in red and says, I've trampled them down in my wrath and my lifeblood has splattered and their lifeblood splattered all over me. Remember what we saw back in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and there was a declaration that he was bringing this year of jubilee. We talked about the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Did you see it there in verse 4? 
For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. He says, I'm doing exactly what I was told to do. The spirit of the Lord was upon me and proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. But in the year of the Lord's favor means there is going to be judgment. When notice the parallel that happens here in Isaiah 63, verse five, he says, I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. He said that before Isaiah 59 remember when in Isaiah 59 he describes all of the world all humanity is full of their sins they are steeped in the darkness and sin and it says there that God looked at that and I saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede and so then my own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him I want you to see that there are two things sitting together as parallel as that is. My righteousness and salvation and my wrath. Righteousness and wrath. What God says is a divine response was needed. And what we learn is that when salvation comes, there is always judgment the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance he does it again here where he speaks of my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath up held me the picture here is simply amazing because over and over again The scriptures have tried to give us that picture that when God saves the enemies of God and His people are always judged. Let's do crash course history. Let's go Israel back to Egypt. God through Moses delivers Israel. What happens to Egypt? Judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. Let's fast forward. Let's go to the Babylonians. They come in, they wipe them out. What happens? God frees Israel from captivity. Babylonian judgment. Fast forward again. We come to the New Testament. We read about the Christians are being persecuted and killed by the Jewish nation. What happens? God brings salvation to the Christians. AD 70, judgment falls upon Jerusalem and the nation. Fast forward again. The Roman Empire is persecuting Christians as the book of Daniel prophesied. What happens? God delivers the Christians. Judgment falls on the Roman Empire. Salvation always brings judgment to the enemies of God and to our enemies every time throughout biblical history. Turn over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Undoubtedly, this paragraph is related directly to the prophecy of Isaiah 63. Isaiah said, see, here he comes. Here he comes. Revelation 19, verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. 
And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. By the way, you see the parallel imagery. He's covered in blood again. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the enemies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. See it? Revelation pictures the same thing. He writes to Christians and says, Your hope is in your King of Kings. Salvation will come through judgment. He will strike down the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron that the Lord goes to war against our very enemies. He's done it again and again and again. Here in Isaiah 63, I'm going to deal with your enemies and I will rule in righteousness and I will tread them down and they will be destroyed in my wrath because that's how your salvation will come. You don't have time, but you can then go to chapter 20 where God deals with our greatest enemy. Revelation 20, here we see the Lord going against Satan. And first we see him cast into an abyss and chained where he's no longer allowed to deceive the nations. His power stripped for a time. And then at the end of chapter 20, we see him released so that the Lord can judge him and cast him into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. God deals with our enemies. God judges such that our salvation comes. This is the promise of God that evildoers will be judged. This is our hope. When we see in Isaiah 63, here comes your Savior. Here He comes riding on the horse and He's covered in blood. Here He is in Revelation, the same picture. Here He comes covered in blood. It is hope to the people of God again and again. Friends, evil doers will be judged. He will deal with the enemies. He will 
bring His vengeance. He will bring about justice. He will take care of all of these wrongs. He will do it. And I think it's so important because when we consider that God will deal with enemies and He will deal with evildoers and He will deal with wickedness, friends, this is how you and I will survive and live by faith in a current, present, dark, wicked, and evil age. God will deal with it. God will take care of it. He will judge His enemies and He will judge our enemies. It is not up for us to deal with. God has got this. This is how we are able then to be set free to live as oaks of righteousness as Isaiah 61 described. You now will shine as lights in the world and you will go forth showing the glory of God and you will show righteousness and you will show salvation and you will bring the nations in and you live in hope and you're able to do that because you know God will take care of all of the injustice that you and I may suffer in the process. And so when you listen to the nightly news and the world report and all of that, Christians do not panic or freak out about all the evil and growing terror and all the problems for God will judge the enemies. God has got this taken care of. He's done it before again and again and again all the way back to Egypt. He has done this. He will judge. He will take care of it. That does not mean His people will not suffer. It does not mean they will not be persecuted. It does not mean they will not be killed. For in the book of Revelation, that happened again and again and again. But their hope was, look who comes for your salvation. There He is riding on the white horse and He is covered in blood for He will judge. That's our hope. That's what sets us free to do something like this that seems to be so difficult. Repay no one evil for evil. Don't treat others the way they've treated you in their evil doings. Don't retaliate when you're sinned against. Don't do all these things that seem so difficult because they're evildoers. They're doing wrong. It's not just. It's not right. God says, hey, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let me end with this. God delights in you and God fights for you. He has solved our greatest need by saving us from our sins. Therefore, we trust in the Lord through all of our suffering, through any difficulties, through any mistreatment, through any evil, that we stand like watchmen on the tops of the towers, praying to God day and night, Lord, bring your promises that we long to be with you and that you will judge your enemies and you will deal with what is right and what is wrong and you will take care of justice and you will bring righteousness. Our hope is in God, not here. Pull your song books out. We'll sing invitation song. We invite you to put your hope in God. To see Jesus as the Savior who has set you free from your sins, but also rules in righteousness and sits on the throne reigning. And He is putting all the enemies under His feet. We may not see those things in our short lifetime, but think about what we're able to see in the Scriptures over thousands of years as we span back. We can see God again and again and again. Salvation through judgment. Judgment will come. It will come again. 
Are you ready for that? For you must be on God's side. You must belong to Him to be able to enjoy the reward that is in His hand. Turn away from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come to Him tonight while we stand and while we sing?